turns into Durga if you treat her properly. And I didn't use Durga because I wanted to show that I actually got accused by someone of being a racist because I did this. It was quite funny because they said, well, you used the Hindu goddess to indicate chaos and like the Greco-Roman goddess to indicate benevolence. And that was obviously an indication of my fundamental pathology. Anyways, it isn't. I just wanted to show that the idea of the benevolent goddess isn't limited to a single culture. And, you know, there's Diana. She's got a lot of breasts. That's what's... Uh, that's what's down in front there. So she's like the, 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 the nourishing element of, of being. That's the best way to think about it. And the nourishing element of being emerges in this sort of fashion. So that's the differentiation of the archetype. So way at the back, there's the predatory serpent chaos that lurks in the background. And then that fragments out in one, or differentiates out in one direction into the feminine. You know, and the feminine, this is a tough one. Because there's this weird interaction here with with gender and archetype. You know, so, so here's something to think about. And I'm, I'm, I'm floundering about on this because I have for a long time, because it's very difficult. Which gender of person are you most likely to see on the cover of a men's magazine? A woman. What gender are you most likely to see on the cover of a woman's magazine? Okay, why? Why is that? Because men want to date the woman on the cover of theirs, and women want to be the woman on the cover of theirs. Yes, that's right. I think that's why. I think that's why. And that means that they're both possessed by the same archetype in a different way. And the archetype is the archetypal feminine, fundamentally. And for women, the archetypal feminine is a judge and, a, and an ideal. The judge is, well, how far do you deviate from that? The ideal is, to what degree can you emulate? And then for men, it's the same damn thing. The judge element's exactly the same thing. And the possession element, well, it's slightly different, but it's not that different, you know. So, but it's a strange thing, because the visual image, the general visual image is that of the feminine. So, it's a strange, because... I don't think the archetypal structures work the same in men and women. And so part of the way I've tried to figure this out is like the sun, the hero is the sun, the, like the male, not the shining sun, although it's also that. It's like, but women obviously have an element of them that can be heroic and adversarial just like men. But then in women that's complicated because the other primary element of their being is the maternal feminine element. And so, but that's complicated because women or men can also be quite maternal. Like for mammals, predatory mammals, men are unbelievably nurturing and feminine. You know, if we were grizzly bears, we'd just eat our own cows. You know, so men are, they're quite feminine as well as being masculine. So I kind of think of it this way. It's like, if you're thinking about what your archetypal personality structure is, it's for men, the hero is at the forefront and the mother, the feminine mother is sort of behind that. And for women, it's reversed. The feminine mother is sort of forefront, and the hero's behind that. But both of the archetypes are, are, are operative. So, so you can think about that, and you can see, see what you make of it. But, you know, because you might say, well, why would women... Is it reasonable to presuppose that for women, the feminine represents the unknown just like it does for men? And I don't think it is just like it is for men. Because I think for women, there's an element of the patriarchal structure that's more unknown than it is for men. 
You know, and I think you see the reaction to that in part, you see the reaction to that in the feminist movement, because the patriarchy is like the tyrannical father, you know, and the patriarchy exists, but it's not, the tyrannical father is not the entire substrate of culture, it's just ridiculous. But I think because women are, you know, in some sense they're outsiders to the male dominance hierarchy, that The male dominance hierarchy is more contaminated by the unknown for women than it is for men. And I think it's more likely to be interpreted as the tyrannical father because of that. So, anyways, I can't exactly sort it out because you end up with nested problems. You know, so insofar as your primary mode of being is feminine and your secondary mode of being is masculine, you're going to have all the characteristics of something masculine and all the characteristics of something feminine, but the manner in which they manifest themselves is going to be different, and I just can't sort that out. It's too damn complicated. Plus, I think that that is what we're sorting out right now in our culture. You know, ever since women got the ability to control their reproductive function, which was probably, at least in part, a consequence of an a priori psychological transformation. Right? Because you could say, well, the pill freed women, but then you could say, well, what was the precondition for creating a society in which the person who invented the pill didn't get killed? You know, because the Catholic Church, for example, was not happy when the pill was invented. Seriously not happy, and no wonder. You know, so obviously there had to be some shifting in the underlying conceptual landscape in relationship to the relationship between men and women for that invention to even have come about. You know, and I think you can really see that starting. You know, if you read the classic Russian novels, you can see that the push towards equality that characterized women was really alive and well in 19th century Russia among the aristocracy. So, you know, it, it, it has a pretty lengthy history. Yeah. How do you think that's associated with the widening of gender differences across Western countries? You mean the, the, the which? The widening of... The waning, you mean? The widening of, widening of personality differences. So, big five differences are wider in more egalitarian countries and depression uh, incidents... I don't know. I don't know how to answer that exactly. So, the, the, the point is that if you look at personality differences between men and women in the modern world, the most egalitarian cultures have the biggest personality differences, the gender differences. And so the technical reason for that is all the environmental variability has been eliminated, and so all that's left is genetic variability, and, there, and that's not masked in some sense by the environmental variability, so it's powerful and profound. But it definitely shows that there's a lot of powerful genetic variability, or definitely. It's a powerful evidence for that. You know, but it also could be, you know, it could easily be that in a, in a society, what you're aiming for in an egalitarian society is the right for everyone to be different in their own way, whatever that happens to be. You know, and obviously that's going to be a limited right to some degree. So an egalitarian society wouldn't necessarily eradicate personality differences. That would be a bloody totalitarian society. It's like, well, get rid of all the differences. Well, you know, to the degree that you're a female, and whatever the hell that means fundamentally, and I'm male, if we have to be the same, then that's going to be a, a function of in, intense, uh, what would you call, control on the part of the state, you know, to the degree that that's intrinsic. We don't know what, how much of it's intrinsic. I would be very hesitant to say not. I mean, look, let's, let's be real about this. Um, I'm wondering, too, if it's additionally complicated, because these archetypes, I, I like, see how they're universal and we understand them, but woman or man, you understand both the female and the male aspect. Like parts of it might seem unknown, but like you understand both. And as personality traits go, like the masculine 
stereotypical traits and feminine stereotypical traits to across genders. Like people, any person of any gender can be this much masculine and this much feminine or whatever. Like they're not opposites. So I wonder if it's um, complicated because any individual person of whatever sex is manifesting parts of both at once in some, like, it's, def it's definitely complicated, but so it's also a prerequisite for long-term relationships between men and women, right? If we weren't a lot the same, or at least capable of being the same, then we wouldn't be able to understand each other at all. I mean, and I don't know if we do, but we do, you know, we do more than other creatures of our complexity, that's for sure. Right. So, yeah, and you know, it's certainly the case that if you look at a given individual and you look at the variability of their personality-linked behavior, the variability within a person is generally greater than the average variability within a population. So, you know, human beings, if you're an extrovert, you can be extremely introverted. Like, there's not very many extroverts at a funeral. Now, the noisiest people at a funeral will be the extroverts, but they're going to be hardly noisy at all, you know. And an introvert can find themselves in a situation where they can't shut up. You know, so there's a lot of intra-individual variability. And I actually think that one of the indexes of psychological health is the maximization of individual variability. Because you should be able to be extremely compassionate, for example, when you're dealing with a sick baby, you know, and extremely uncompassionate when you're dealing with someone who's, you know, using their illness as an excuse not to pull their own weight. But you need both of those, right? And, and you know, you'll end up with an average point as a consequence of your genetic structure and maybe your, your socialization. And it's sort of up to you to widen yourself out across the full spectrum so that you can call on those abilities when it's necessary. I think that's part of what differentiation as a person actually means. You know, because you, you come to be able to do more things. And so you can match yourself much more carefully to the immediate demands of the situation. So, yeah. Any other questions? Okay, so the, the symbol for, for anomaly, the feminine, differentiates into the negative feminine and the positive feminine. Part of the issue is how do you get more of the positive and keep the negative at bay? And you know, that's a, that's a question that people have to ask themselves at the, person of individual, at the level of individual interaction with other people and with themselves. But then it also works as a representation of the unknown and nature as such. It's because in some ways those are the same thing. So that's, you know, that's a differentiation. So, so this is the relationship between the hero archetype and the feminine. So what you have here is the chaos dragon differentiating itself into the feminine, which is half positive and half negative. And the feminine there being manifested in the form of, that's the Virgin Mary with Christ on her lap. It's a, you, you saw the same representation when we were looking at Isis and Horus. And what's really quite cool about that is you see she's surrounded by this, this mandorla, this, this uh, you know, almond-shaped opening, fundamentally. And you, you see, this is something the Renaissance artists did a lot. You see, along the edges of the mandorla, there's all these little baby heads that are popping out with wings on them. And those are called puti, you know, and it's very common that when you see representations of Mary with, with, with like the cosmos sort of billowing out behind her, because that's what you see, it's like a hole into time and space, that there's all these potential beings that are surrounding her, you know, it's these little baby heads with wings, like what the hell are they? Well, what is this thing? 
You know, it's so strange. I, I went to a museum in New York where a number of Renaissance paintings of this type were, were arrayed in this one room. It's like a room worth a billion dollars, you know, this amazing room. And there are people all from all over the world, and they're looking at these damn paintings. They see, you know, this. It's like, it's Mary, and she's sitting on the moon, and there's a bunch of, like, winged baby heads around her. It's like, what the hell is that all about? And everybody's looking at it, like, well, you know, this, there's really something to this. It's like you tap them on the shoulder, and you say, why did you travel from, like, Cincinnati to come to this museum to look at, like, this woman who you don't even believe in, sitting on the crescent moon, surrounded by baby heads? Like, they don't know. They have no idea why they're there. They're fascinated by the painting, right? They're fascinated by it. Yeah, they're going to conjure up some reasons, but, you know, you don't even notice how absurd it is till you take the picture apart a bit. What the hell are these things, these pooty? You know, I think what they are are potential beings. That's the representation. And so Mary represents the, the feminine domain from which potential being emerges, which is a perfectly reasonable way of characterizing a feminine archetype. You know, one of the pictures I will show you, which I just love, is Mary. It's another representation of Mary, and she's got Christ in her hands, and she's holding him up to the left, and her foot, her foot is going on a snake's head, which I think is so cool, because if you look at that picture and you strip away the Judeo-Christian presuppositions, and you just look at it like a damn biologist, you think, well, of course that's what she's doing, you know? It's like, Mama Chimp keeps the damn infant away from the snakes. And that's the archetype, and of course it's the archetype, because that is what you do. That's what you do when you're a mother. Especially if you have nice edible babies that snakes like to eat, and that is certainly something that characterized us in our evolutionary past. So it's no wonder it's a divine archetype, you know? Of course it is. How could it not be? You might say, well, I don't believe in that. It's like, what the hell does that mean? You don't believe in that. You know, I, I, I can't even understand what that means anymore when I think about such things. It's like, yeah. There's, you don't have an option about believing in that. It's just the fundamental nature of reality. You know, is that the mother of God? Depends on what you mean. You know, it depends on how much divinity is embodied in your child. And believe me, once you have that child, you're going to think, hey, there's a pretty big chunk of divinity embodied in that child. No one, no snake's going to get that. I'm going to keep it away from predators and, you know, evildoers and try to raise it into the best possible thing. It's like... You may say you don't believe that. It's like, what the hell do you know? Insofar as you're a good mother, you'll be acting that out like mad. And I'm not going to say that's wrong, because I actually think it's right. I think the child is a container of the divine, and that your job as a mother is to allow that child to facilitate the development of that child into the mythological hero. That's what you're up to. And that's a holy mission, insofar as you can use that word to describe anything. And I fail to see how that is not real. I think it's the most real thing. So, and I also think the degree to which you're going to be able to do that as a mother, it will be the most rewarding thing you ever do in your life. And you'll figure that out, you know. It's a powerful thing, and your life changes completely once you have your own child. It's like, they're not like other children. They're your own child. It's like, they're the most important thing in the world right then, and from then on, if you're healthy. Like your priority shift, it's not about you anymore. And that's a sacrifice, you know? It's a real sacrifice. It's the sacrifice that women are called on to make. And it's a, it's a major sacrifice. Okay, so the, you know, the mother gives birth to the hero. Okay, that's Hercules. It's not Christ, it's Hercules in this particular representation. And she's, I love this representation. It's, it's so cool. So Hercules, he's out there in the darkness, 
on the water. So it's the watery chaos. And so that's where he situated himself voluntarily. And he's, he's in this container. That's a good thing. You could think about that as a maternal container, or you could think about it as cultural protection. Doesn't really matter. And then he's got this club. And if you look on the club, it's got these weird bumps on it. But if you look at the bumps, what you understand is those aren't bumps. Those are eyes. So he's just like Marduk. He's got this club, and what's the club? It's like attention. That's it. You know, and if you're going to club something, you have, obviously you have to pay attention to it. Maybe it's like a rampaging lion, and if you turn away from it, well, it's going to eat you. So the club's useless without the attention. But, you know, the picture says a club, which is a weapon, a weapon is a meta, is a form of meta-attention. Or, sorry, I got that reversed. Attention is a meta-weapon. It's the ultimate weapon against the unknown. And so there's Hercules, he's got his eyes wide open, he's peering out into the darkness, he's got this lion head on, and that's because he killed a lion, and you know, men used to do that, you know, when they were shepherds out in the desert in, in the Middle East, one of the things they had to do was kill a lion with a spear, it's like, that's really worth thinking about, man, that's hard to do that, that would be very hard, it'd be very frightening to do that, and so, but men used to do that, and so that's really something to think about. Anyway, so he's got this lion suit on, and the lion is king of the beasts, roughly speaking, so it represents the thing that's at the top of the dominance hierarchy. You all know that, because otherwise you couldn't have understood the lion king. And the lion is a solar beast, because it's yellow, and it works out in, you know, it's a daylight creature. It's out there on the veld, where everything's sunny. So it's associated with the sun, and illumination, and enlightenment. And so it's like lion, sun, sun with eyes, goes out to conquer the unknown. And that's what the mother does if she raises the proper son. It's like, now she's also doing that for the daughter. But again, that's complicated, because women are complicated. And, and their role is very, very complex. You know? And so to some degree, they're the hero, but to some degree, they're the mother of the hero. And those are, I would say, I don't know. I don't know how to, how to configure that. You could say you, you could say that in some sense a, a conscious mother gives up her own individual heroism as a sacrifice to the potential heroism of her children. You know? And that's worth thinking about. Because my guess is that for most of you your mother did that. You know, now you wanna, you know, we, my wife had a dream once about putting on her great-grandmother's shoes, she, her grandmother's shoes, she really liked her grandmother, a very feminine person, you know, like, you know, cookie-making, apple-pie-baking, piano-playing grandmother, you know, she had it down. Took care of old people in the old folks' home, even when she was 80, and she was really cheerful and tough, but she was a great person, I really liked her. But when my wife dreamed of her, she dreamt she was trying on her shoes, and the shoes were too small. You know, and that was very interesting, because what it seemed to indicate to me was that and she loved her grandmother, man. There's no doubt about that. That that role, despite her grandmother having fulfilled that so well, it wasn't enough. And, you know, women have kind of, kind of decided that. And maybe that's for the best. Because now there's all these smart women running around doing useful things. And, you know, that's probably good. But exactly how to sort that out has not yet been figured out. So, what time is it? Four. Four. Okay, good. Thank you.